Um, Go ahead and turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 18. Primarily, there will be two texts that we look at, the first one being here. It's been, in my opinion, it's been really fun the last month or so to hear uh, these guys get up before me and uh, kind of share from the Word of God what the true nature of the church really is. And I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but this series that, series that we're in, The Nature of the Church, um, is designed to take these significant passages from Scripture and expound from them what God says the nature of the church is, what kinds of things we ought to be about doing, who we should be, that sort of thing. Uh, I also want to make real clear that it's not the opinion of Jason or Rod or Darren who shared last week or John or anybody else that is going to come up and share. We're interested in the opinion of really the only one who matters, God himself. So when we share, like this morning, when we share, like the last three weeks, really every Sunday, when we share, this is God's opinion that we're expressing to the church. And we hope that you all will receive it as that. This morning is, is, is not me. This, this is not my opinion. I'd probably have a much different one if it were left up to me. Now, um, Jason started uh, a month ago, I think, beginning of September-ish. And we looked at the prophets. We looked at the Pentateuch. And from those things, he showed us who the church really is and how God has called her out. So I'm going to refer to the church in the feminine tense today, because that's kind of how Scripture does. Um, we're his bride. Uh, so I'm going to refer to the church as her, she today. Don't be confused by that. Uh, Jason, I think, set the stage really well. I thank God for him in setting the stage really well for now where we go in the New Testament and some other passages to help explain who we are as a body, what we're supposed to be doing as a body. We saw how God not only called out the church, but he also sustains it through time. Even till today. So then John at the 200th anniversary celebration a few weeks ago, um, he, he really called us to remember the things that we came out of and to leave those behind. He says we press on for what God has called us to do. So he was calling Ramsey Creek, a 200-year-old body of believers, to continue to pursue the things that God has given us to do, our responsibilities. Guys, that, what God has given us to do has not changed in 200 years. It's incredible. And so we still have a task that's unfinished that we get to be a part of here. Um, then last week, our friend Darren reminded us that Jesus Christ is the rock on which the church is built and on which the church has to stand even today. When we operate in that way, when Christ is the rock, when he is the head, and we follow him, not even the gates of hell can stand against the church. Okay? One of my favorite things that Darren said, I don't know if I've got this as a, as a pure quote from you, brother, but he said, I don't build the church, you don't build the church, not, not any of our fancy schemes or uh, smooth ways of speaking. We don't build the church. God and God alone builds his church. Thank you for saying that. We need to hear that. We can say with confidence, based on what we know so far, that we've 
heard in this series that God loves the church. That God has called the church out. He has set her apart. He has promised her his guidance. And as Darren also said last week, he's given us a responsibility. There's stuff that we get to do as a church. And so what we talk about this morning is just one of those responsibilities. And so look down at your Bible and read with me in Matthew 18, specifically starting in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Would you pray with me again? God, this is your word, and we want to handle it well. Uh, As workmen who are not ashamed to do so, help us to be not ashamed of your word, even the difficult parts. You are God. There's none like you. And so, Lord, we thank you for this text. I pray that you give us help in understanding it and applying it this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, This isn't the focus uh, of what I'm going to share this morning, but I forgot to put it in my notes, and I want to say it before I forget. But look at the the end of this text, (laughs) verse 20. This is a, a wonderful verse that so many people take out of context and used wrongly. Uh, This is in the context of church discipline. When he says, where two or three are gathered in your name, there am I in your midst. It absolutely applies to a small gathering of of believers. Um, But really this is in this context. So just kind of keep that in mind as we go along here. Um, I want to say this before we get into anything else. If we want to be a church that glorifies God, and I think everyone would raise their hand if I asked if you wanted that. But if we want to be a church that glorifies God, we can't downplay or ignore any of the instruction that he's given to us. Okay? In the broadest sense, church discipline is everything the church does to help its members pursue holiness and fight sin. We get... Well, I'm going to get into that in a minute. Um, Preaching... Teaching, prayer, corporate worship, accountability relationships, uh, godly oversight, all of these things, believe it or not, fall under the category of church discipline. But it's important, um, just kind of get technical here for a second, because I do think it's important in this, to distinguish between the different kinds. There's really two different kinds of church discipline. I'm going to spend a lot of time on this, but formative church discipline and corrective discipline church discipline, formative church discipline, forming, it's teaching. When, when we teach, when you hear that teaching, you're being formed and corrected where, you, where God needs to correct you, okay? He does that through his word and the preaching of it. Now, that's foolishness to the world, but not to believers. That's formative church discipline. Corrective church discipline is, as you could imagine, is correcting mistakes, 
The two go hand in hand, and you really can't even separate them. In the life of the church, discipline in this way, as forming and correcting, really should be characterized by our lives, not just Sunday morning, but Monday through Saturday as well. Okay? Discipline, we might say, is really just another way to describe the discipleship process. And if you're in that kind of a relationship, and I hope that you are, but if you're in that kind of a relationship with somebody, you know this. There's accountability there. There's challenging there. You call one another out when you need to be called out. We all want a church that's characterized by people that pursue godliness. Typically, I say typically, maturing believers ask for this type of thing. They don't hide from it because they want to grow. Right. So um, if you fill in for a Sunday school teacher, you know, you may go to them and say, hey, you know, how did I do? Is there anything that I need to do differently? Or you talk to your husband or your wife or a good friend who you trust and you say, hey, you know, is there any areas in my life that that I'm lacking in that that maybe I'm blinded to that I need to uh, ask for God's help in? That's typical, not Always, but it, it's typical for Christians who really want to grow. They're going to seek those kind of relationships out. We shouldn't turn from them. We shouldn't hide from them because we want to grow. So when should the dis- discipleship process happen? When should discipline happen? All week. All week. Not just Sunday morning. Not just at a business meeting. Any of those things. It should happen all week. The vast majority of discipline in the church is going to occur in the ordinary course of relationships between its members. We think of church discipline in so many wrong ways. This is it. This is how scripture lays it out as we're going to see today. Church discipline is a subject that um, many of us don't really understand. Most of us haven't seen it done right. Um, Actually, probably most of us haven't seen it done at all or talked about at all. Uh, Frankly, some of us would just like to think that, that Jesus didn't even talk about it. We'd rather just forget it. The problem is, number one, he's God and you can't. Um, Number two, he's not the only person in Scripture that talks about church discipline, as we'll see this morning too. I I think, and and this is, I hope this doesn't come across as harsh, but God dealt with me in this this week, so you get to deal with it too, I guess. Um, But to roll our eyes at this type of a thing, I think reveals a lack in the sovereignty of God. I think it reveals a doubt in God's good plan for his church and his people in the church. And in in my heart, so I'll share with you, I think this also reveals an immaturity in our walk with the Lord. If we just, well, we can't do that, or that's not for today, or we can't do that here in our small church, or whatever the excuse may be, if that's our attitude, we're lacking in maturity. And I pray that God would grow us up this morning in this today together. It's tempting also to remember, you guys remember in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, they would go and then they would complain. And sometimes it was sort of warranted, you know, like, hey, we're going to die of thirst. And they were complaining, well, God had mercy and what did he do? He had Moses strike a rock, water came out in a miraculous way. They saw this and then it's like, Almost like two days later, they were complaining again about something. And we think, you just saw water come out of a rock. How on earth are you going to complain about something else, about whatever? It's easy to kind of 
see that in them and not ever turn that realization on our own hearts. So don't do that this morning. We have to turn that light of realization onto ourselves if we ever want to fulfill the purposes that God has for us as his people. Okay? Now, it's really impossible to go further with this. The dish, I'm slurring my words here. The issue of church discipline if we don't talk about church membership. And so I just want to talk about that really briefly for a second. Remember, it's already been stated in weeks past, the church is God's called out people, not a building. This is a wonderful, beautiful place that we have here to worship. This is not the church. You guys are the church. We know that. The church is God's called out people who display the glory of God in our world, a sin-soaked world. To help us get in the right mindset about this, I want, to listen, I want you to listen to this quote. It's from a guy named Sam Alberry from his book called Why Bother with Church. He says this, When God's people gather, the spiritual world is watching. Though you can't see it, when you meet this Sunday, the spiritual powers, both those loyal to God and those who oppose him, will look on. And they won't notice what either either impresses or disappoints us about our church. They won't be struck by the stage or the sound system, the parking lots and the band, or the broken heating, the peeling paint, the weak orange juice, or the struggling organ. They'll be struck instead by who is meeting there. That such diverse people are sitting together and loving each other because they know that the Lord Jesus loves them and died for them. The church is the way in which God showcases his wisdom to the spiritual realms. It's how he demonstrates the power and the beauty of his gospel. This is precisely what Ephesians 3 verse 10 is talking about. The true church reminds the watching world, physical, spiritual, it reminds them of the power and the plan of God. It's important. The church is important. Now, Darren, with Darren last week, we looked at Matthew chapter 16. He talked about the rock, and he talked about the keys of the kingdom. And there, and also here in Matthew 18, Jesus says that being a part of the kingdom of God also means part of being, being part of the church on earth. Okay? So, where do we see the church on earth? Here, the local body. We see it in the true churches in Ellsbury, in the true church, churches in Eolia, in Bowling Green, all these different churches where people are genuinely worshiping God in spirit and in truth. That's where we see the church on earth. And Jesus says two times now that we've looked at that you're to be a part of it, a part of the church on earth. Biblical church membership is important because the church is God's witness in the world today. In the church membership, then, non-Christians should see the lives of God's changed people. They should see in those lives that God is holy and gracious and that he's powerful for saving and transforming sinners. So being a member of Ramsey Creek, specifically, doesn't mean that you just get the right to vote on certain issues. Being a member at Ramsey Creek doesn't mean that you get to look down on people who are not members. It also does not mean that you get to stand before God one day and hang your hat on your church membership 
when you've lived your life while you're here with no regard to the glory of God in this world. That's not what church membership is about. None of those things that I just mentioned. Church membership is about you being accountable to me and you being accountable, me being accountable to you for how well we're displaying the truth that God transforms lives. That's what church membership is. Accountability one to another. Now, when one of us fails to display that truth about God by how we're living our lives, Jesus says in Matthew 18 that we're supposed to go to them in love and confront the sin issue. And that's where we're kind of at today. Now, Paul takes it a step further in 1 Corinthians 5 that we'll look at after a while. Um, but he refers to some people as being inside the church and some people being outside the church. It's important that he does that. Number one, we'll see now, is that to have the right idea about church membership, we have to understand that it's more than just a casual association with a bunch of religious people. That's not what church membership is. Because you could get that in any number of different places. It's important that Paul distinguishes between inside and outside the church because, honestly, the church has never been given authority to judge or discipline non-believers. It sort of irks me. Is that a word? Irks? It sort of bothers me when Christians get so mad at big companies and organizations for taking Christ out of Christmas and not saying Merry Christmas. Why do we expect non-Christians to act like believers? I don't, I don't really understand that. I mean, certainly we should recapture Christ as being a part of Christmas. Let's do that in our families. Let's put him above everything else. But let's not hold picket signs because people don't say Merry Christmas anymore. Let's reach them with the gospel. That's the power to change, not your picket sign. I don't know where I'm at now. I wasn't going to say all that. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's, uh, let's turn there. That's where I want to go. If in doubt, read more Bible, right? <laughs> 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Follow along. I'm going to read. Start, start with verse 1. It's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not even tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And, it, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who's did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us, therefore, celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or swindlers, or idolaters. Since then, you need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, 
if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Matthew 18 is church discipline in theory. Okay, Jesus says, if and when a brother or a person is in sin, here's what you do. 1 Corinthians 5 is church discipline in action, and pretty severely so, um, especially based on the case here. It warrants Paul's response. Paul says, purge the person from among you. I can't imagine Paul being real excited to write this chapter to the church at Corinth. Can you? To address these kinds of issues. There were a lot of misconceptions that they had. We don't have time to get into all of that. Um, but, I mean, he used strong language there when he was talking to the church in Corinth. He said, um, he, he, he condemned them almost for boasting. What were they boasting about? They were boasting that they tolerated this. And Paul says, no, you shouldn't be accepting of this. You shouldn't be tolerant of this sin. What does he say to do instead? He says, you should mourn. Now, when we hear that, we don't get biblical tense of what that word really means. Oftentimes in scripture, you'd see people tear their clothes. You'd see people put ashes on their heads, shave their heads. It was a big deal to mourn. And this is what Paul says that the church should be doing. They shouldn't accept it. They should be upset by it. They should be torn up about it. Here's what I think he's getting at. They should not go about as life as typical, life as normal when this is going on. You can't continue functioning as a body normally when this is in it, when this is happening. And he's saying, mourn about this. Don't be arrogant. Don't be proud. Brothers and sisters, as a church, we cannot tolerate sin in our own life. And we shouldn't tolerate it in the lives of one another. We can't tolerate sin in our lives or one another's lives simply because God doesn't tolerate it either. Instead of tolerance, instead of coddling, instead of ignoring our sin, God crushed his beloved son because of it. We can't just sweep under the rug what God has dealt with so severely. Can't do it. I titled today's sermon, Recovering Real Love, because I, I think we have a faulty and incomplete idea of what real love is and what real love does. And I hope Scripture clears that up for us this morning. But I, I'll just say again, to watch a brother or sister become entangled and continue in sin is not kindness. It's not love. We think, though, that it is. right. We get into this worldly mindset of, you know, well, everybody's got their vices. Everybody sins. I'm just as bad as they are. If I confront them about their sin, they, they've... Look at all the things I've done wrong. They could confront me about my sin. Then we're just going to be mad at each other and we're not going to accomplish anything. Right? We get this idea 
And if that's our thinking, we're wrong. Based on what Jesus says, based on what the Apostle Paul says, his word, we'd be wrong. Now, Matthew 18 lays the groundwork. Jesus kind of lays this out for how we are to love one another through church discipline. And so I I just want to walk through it in the time that we have so that we all understand these steps, what they're for, how they should look, and hopefully see the undergirding of love for one another in all of this. So go back to Matthew 18 with me. As you're doing that, let me also say this. If Jesus, it's clear in Matthew 18, Jesus lays this out. We're to take it before the church. That means it's a church issue. It's church discipline kind of a thing. If we refuse to exercise church discipline and for this to be a part of our body, are we trying to be more loving than Jesus is? We can't, we can't be that. We can't do that. The steps he gives are pretty straightforward here. Number one, he says, if a brother or a sister sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. Um, I want to take some notice of some things at each step just so we can kind of clarify maybe some, some issues uh, just so we all know what's going on. Um, Jesus tells you to go to that person alone. All right? This is important. And the rest of everything is based off of this. He does not tell you to go and tell three people first and ask them if they can believe what this person did. He doesn't tell you to go to an elder or to your Sunday school teacher so you can let them handle it. He doesn't tell you to go to tell other people and ask them what they think you should do. Jesus tells you what you should do. Go to that person. So what I'm saying is you don't have to involve a pastor or an elder or your Sunday school teacher or your mom or your dad. We're given instruction as a part of the body of Christ, as a member of the church, to go to that person alone first. Okay? That's pretty clear. If you agree with that, nod yes. Okay, awesome. Um, Galatians, Jason read from Galatians 6.1. Paul tells mature believers, he, he says, go to anyone who's entangled in sin and get them out of it. That process isn't always pretty. Parents understand this. We understand this with our kids. Um, but that process isn't always pretty. It doesn't always go exactly how you would like, but we should always do it, Galatians 6.1 says, with gentleness. Also, it says to watch out yourself so you're not pulled into it. You're not also tempted by these things. Then <clears throat> Jesus says, if that brother who you've gone to in love listens to you and repents, you've, you've recovered him, you've gained him back through love, and praise God, he's restored. But if he doesn't, we go to the next step. Number two, he says to take one or two others so that they can verify the accuracy of the situation. So this means, this doesn't mean that you go and tell the people you gossip to about it and bring them with you. This means that you go and you bring objective, godly people with you so they can get both sides and try to understand what is true and what needs to really happen here. They need to understand that there really is a problem with sin and that things are being handled according to Scripture. That's what those extra people are there for. 
Now, the principle of gentleness from, Ephesians, from Galatians 6.1 is still at play here. We still go in love. We still go with gentleness, watching ourselves. Because it's awfully easy for a group of three or four people, which it would be at this point, you and two or three more, it's awfully easy for a group of three or four people to come across as like ganging up on someone, even though that's not at all the intent. So we need to be conscious of that. We need to understand that because restoration is still the goal. But if the person still doesn't listen after you've brought several people with you, step number three, Jesus says, you go and you take it to the church, the whole church. Um, That doesn't mean Sunday morning worship in our context because we have members and non-members here. This would mean with the membership as a whole, it's taken before them. And the purpose of this step is not to gossip, Jesus says to do it, therefore it can't be gossip. The purpose of this is to explain the situation to the membership of the church and to ask them to get involved with reconciling and restoring this this brother, this person. It's to say, hey, here's the situation, here's what's going on. We need your help as the body to go and to love on a hurting member, to go and to restore this hurting member back to the church, back to the church fellowship with God, calling them to repent from their sin. But Jesus says, if that doesn't work, if they still don't listen to the church, he says, remove them, send them away. Um, Verse 17, let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. If you're in home team and you're going through the book of Mark, we've talked a little bit about the call of Levi at the beginning of That book, Levi was a tax collector. No one liked Levi. People got upset when they saw Jesus eating with him because no one liked him. They were were banned from the synagogues. Jews were um, allowed to lie to tax collectors and not face judgment, they thought, because tax collectors were that bad of people. And Jesus says, send the person out and treat them that way. 1 Corinthians 5, what we just read, Paul actually goes even further and he says, don't associate with them. Don't even eat a meal with them. I know that this flies in the face of often of what we think we ought to be doing. But this is Paul and this is Jesus. Take their words for it. He says, I don't tell you not to be that way, not to associate with people of the world who are involved in this stuff. Because if you did that, you'd have to leave the world and go somewhere else. But for the person who says that they're a brother, proclaims Christ, and they still remain unrepentant after the whole church has gone to them, pleading with them to come back, treat them this way. Paul says don't even eat with them. This behavior, I think, is to visibly reinforce and to display to this person that sin cannot be excused. And fellowship can only be restored through repentance and restoration here. Here's a general principle. Uh, We're going to kind of go back through these steps really quickly. But here's a principle I want us to keep in mind. Jesus tells us, in essence, to keep the circles as small as possible. Be discreet, he says. Let's kind of think about how this might play out in real life. So go back to step number one. 
If you go to a brother and he listens to you and repents, that's the end of church discipline. Two people knew about it, you and them. God has restored that person through love, and he's glorified in it. And that's the, that was church discipline, but only two people knew about it. God is glorified in it. What if he doesn't listen? You go to step two. If you have to go to step two and you take two or three more and this person listens to them, that's the end of church discipline. Three or four people might know about the situation. Your brother was restored through love and God was glorified. Because we followed his word. Well, if that doesn't work and we go to the next step, we tell it to the church. The church reminds that person of their love for them, but they need to repent and be restored to faith and to, to the Lord. If that person listens to the church, that's the end of church discipline. The church knows about it, but your brother was restored through their love and God is glorified in that. Now, if we have to cast this person out, remove this man from the church membership and treat him as an unbeliever. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 that um, God's further discipline in their lives, probably pretty extreme discipline, will deliver them from destruction on the day of our Lord, verse 5 says. I don't exactly understand all that that entails. But I understand that this is the process that Jesus lays out. Now, if that last step has to happen... Unfortunately, everyone knows about it, but the church displayed loving care in seeking this person's restoration, and even in that situation, God is glorified because we've obeyed his word. Now, we've looked at kind of the progression of love in all of this. We've went through the steps that Jesus laid out. I think it'd be helpful for for us to understand really more of the purpose of of church discipline. And I want to address that from four different angles, from four different perspectives. Okay? First, I want us to see towards God. What does this do toward to God? Well, think about the whole of the Bible. God's holiness is a theme, is a major dominant theme in all of Scripture. This is why the Old Testament Jews under the Old Covenant had so many things to do because God was holy. It means that God is totally apart from and opposed to every sin. All right? Because of this, when God's people sin, He's going to deal with our sin and take us through discipline if we don't repent, which we've talked about. Think about uh, the messages in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, to the churches that are there, um, the Lord repeatedly warns that if they don't deal with their sin, he, he's going to set himself up against them. Imagine that. God is going to set himself up against them and possibly even remove their lampstand. Is it possible that this means that God would rather have no testimony in a city than to have one that is mingled with sin? outward, apparent, evident to all, is it possible that God would rather have no testimony there than one that is wrong? Toward God, then, church discipline recaptures his holiness and his honor. 
When we exercise church discipline, we recapture the holiness and honor of God. Number two, toward the church, the body, the membership. Now, in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, Paul said, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you, because you really are, in fact, unleavened or supposed to be. So leaven here, obviously, um, he's talking about yeast. So when you put yeast in, in baking, when you put yeast in something in flour, um, over time and temperature and all the right conditions, it starts to rise. Okay? So Paul is figuratively saying here, symbolically saying, um, something that he really he says plainly in verses 2 and 13, he's saying that the church needs to remove the sinning person from inside to regain the purity of the church and also that the sin would not spread any further like the leaven in the lump. Remove it, he says, for those reasons. If we don't uphold the standard of God's holiness, it won't take long for the church to become just like the world. We've seen that progression happen and the church has been given that responsibility. Remove the leaven from the lump. So toward the church itself, church discipline restores purity and it deters other people from sinning in similar ways. Number three, toward the world, the outside world, the unbelieving world. In an attempt well, this is almost a condemnation on the church as a, as a whole, but in an attempt to be more attractional and seeker-friendly, the church, churches often have had the attitude of, hey, you know, come on in and join us. Um, we're messed up just like you. We have issues. Um, we marry and get divorced and all of these things. We, we got problems. We're the same as you. We're no different. We're not going to judge you for your sin. Come on in and join us. And we do the church of God. <laughs> we do the church of God a disservice when we have that attitude. If we say, well, it's okay because everyone does it, or come on in and join us because we're just tolerant people like you, we stab scripture in the back, so to speak. Because it's clear as Jason set forth in the first two weeks of this study, that we are called out of the church, or out of the world as the church, excuse me. We are called out. We are redeemed people. We are not the same. How many themes, how many scriptures in the New Testament does Jesus and Paul and Peter and others talk about the light and the darkness and how they can't have fellowship one with another? We're different from the world. Now, I'm not talking about adding legalistic rules for us to follow to be a part of this little club or whatever. I'm talking about being people who are captivated by the holiness of God and the beauty of God in His holiness so that we intentionally and willingly distance ourselves from the unsaved world. Not in reaching them, but in identification. We are to be in the world, yes, but not of the world. Toward the world, then, church discipline dis displays God's standards of holiness and draws a line between the church and the world. And he sets it apart in that way. The fourth and last thing that I want to point out is toward the offender, toward the person who's in sin, who's being approached. 
and I've said it already, but I'll say it again, some wrongly think that love is opposed to discipline. I've had the, the honor and privilege of working with our community's teenagers for the last 13 or so years, and I've, I've been in touch with parents who have this mindset. They don't want to discipline their kid because they want their kid to like them. They want their child to have fun at home. And it most of the time creates issues in life, immediately or later. And then we mourn together about these things. Love is not opposed to discipline. Hebrews chapter 12, we're not going to look there, but Hebrews chapter, chapter 12 reminds us that a loving father disciplines his child. And one who does not love, or one who does not discipline, does not love. God loves, and so he disciplines us, in order that we may share in his holiness, it says. But sin destroys relationships. It destroys people. And so to be indifferent or ignorant of someone who is sinning is not really to care about that person at all. Almost we could say it's if we hate them. We don't care about them. Just let them do whatever they want. Instead, if we were to recover real love, real love seeks to turn a sinner from their ways back to the cross. That's what love does. The goal in church discipline is never, hear this, the goal in church discipline is never vindictive. Ever. If, if that's your motivation in going to someone, you need to stop, not go to them, and repent of your own sin first. That's Jesus when he says, take the splinter out of your own eye before you remove or one or the other. You guys know what I'm talking about? That's what he means. Stop, repent of your own sin. Church discipline is never vindictive. We're not seeking to punish people We're not seeking even to throw them out of the church. Our aim is always gentleness and restoration. Always. To the very end. So toward the one in sin, toward the offender, church discipline conveys biblical love and seeks to restore them. The true nature of the church, the true desire of the church, is inclusion. However, when inclusion is forfeited, the church must exclude Does that make sense? What I mean by that is that the real nature and desire of the church is to open its arms in fellowship and love to all of its members, to everyone together. But when sin is clung to, despite the loving cries of help, then the church must close its arms of fellowship to that person in order that God would deal with them and pray that they would someday repent and turn back and be welcomed back together. See, we don't execute Matthew 18 in order to get revenge on a brother or sister. We don't do that. We follow Jesus' teaching because he commanded us as loving church members, loving Christians, to do this, to lovingly alert people of the danger that's in front of them. Now, parents, we get this part too. So I want to take a scenario in our minds for a second, okay? Okay. Imagine that it's dark and your child is walking towards a cliff. They don't see it. It's dangerous. 
they could fall and be seriously injured. They may even die. But it's dark, and they don't see it. Unbeknownst to them, they're walking, probably having a good time, and walking towards this cliff, and they don't know it. As a parent, what are you going to do? You're going to yell. You're going to say, hey, stop. You're, you're heading towards danger. You need to stop where you're at and don't go any further. Now, if they don't listen the first try, what are you going to do? You're probably going to yell a little louder. You're probably going to maybe get more animated, even though they couldn't see you in the dark. You're, you're going to start to, your efforts are going to get louder and stronger. It might even get to the point where you try to physically stop them from going down this path of danger. You do whatever you had to. Why? Because you love your kid. Because you love them. But think about this from the, the kid's perspective for a second. Think about it from their angle. They, they might hear you the first time, but they, they're probably going to think, man, dad, I'm okay. I'm all right, you know. I don't, you don't know where I'm coming from. I'm not in any real danger. I'm really not. So then they're, they're not listening, so you're getting louder as a parent. And they hear that, and maybe they think, man, this is really getting annoying, right? I can't believe Dad is embarrassing me like this. All my friends are right here walking the same way beside me. If they're all going down this path, it, there's no, there can't be any danger there. They wouldn't do that. It's, it's got to be safe. Well, then, maybe they're not listening then, so you try and you physically stop them. They're going to probably think you're overstepping your bounds as a parent, right? They're going to think that if they really love me, they just leave me alone. They just let me do what I want to do. Here's a truth in all of this. In parenting, but also in the context of this morning, your loving efforts to warn a child of danger might be misunderstood by them and others as unloving. It probably, I'll go even that far, it probably will seem unloving to your kid to physically stop them from danger. But what's more loving? Warning your child at the sake of their embarrassment or annoying them or letting them travel down a road that could lead to their destruction? Think about that. I think we have to recover what real love is and what real love does as a church. It's easy to listen to God's word on this topic and say, well, I see that, but... Well, I, I see that, but if we start doing this, we're going to empty the church. Nobody's going to want to come back. If we start doing this, our church is going to have a horrible reputation in the community. If we start doing this, It'd be just like dragging that person's reputation through the mud. If Enter in any kind of excuse you might think of here. When we see the word of God plainly on a topic, and you all shook your head that you understood things pretty clear here on these, um, if we understand God's word on something, please, 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 brothers and sisters, don't say, yeah, but. Please don't ever do that. I see that, but it doesn't really apply in my situation. No, wrong. I see that, but it's going to hurt if I do this. Maybe. When we see God's word, do it. God, 
God's word works. It's not a formula to just plug in and fix a situation. That's not what I mean. What I mean is obeying God's word works. And I guarantee you, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you can think back on your past experiences and you can attest to this. You can test, have a testimony for this. Absolutely, this was hard. I didn't want to do this. But look at God's faithfulness through it. Believing that God's word is true and good for his church now is the right thing. It works. Now, it seems like we don't hear testimony of this often enough. It seems like we, we hear the, the negative aspects of these sorts of things. We don't hear the, the positives, how God gets glory out of this, but we get the opportunity to hear something today that I'm excited for. Joy, would you come on up? Um, Joy's going to share with us a little bit about something that God has done in her life. Good. Hi, I'm Joy. Um, if you don't know me, I'm Paul and Kathy Yates' daughter. Um, I'm probably going to cry. I'm sorry. <laughs> if I was still going like I was two years ago, I would not be standing here today. In January of 2015, I found out I was pregnant. <laughs> trying to tell Paul Kathy Yates that you're pregnant out of wedlock is <laughs> next to impossible. <laughs> Finally, I told them like a month later after I found out. They went to the church, or the el- deacon, it was just elders, to the elders and talked to them. Jason and Charity volunteered to come talk to me. They came to me with love. I was kind of angry. I really didn't want to talk to them. And I was like, why? But they came to me with love and told me that I need to change. I really didn't want to at first. It was hard. Um, and about Mother's Day of 2015, I've been going to church and stuff between then and everything, but Mother's Day of 2015, I was really starting to show. I hadn't told anyone yet, besides a few people, that I was pregnant. I came, I was telling mom, like, I don't want to go to church. I look fat. I don't want to go to church. Everyone's going to be judging me. I walk into church. I'm crying. I was a mess. Rowan and Haynes turns around. I don't even know if she knew what was going on. But she turned around and gave me a hug and told me everything was going to be okay. And right then and there, I knew it was going to be okay. <laughs> a few days later, I finally posted on Facebook, because, you know, nothing's official until it's on Facebook, <laughs> that I was pregnant. And then everyone knew. I struggled, I struggled, but September 9th, 2015, I had Noah. Right then and there, I knew God had this. <laughs> and it was... <laughs> and. I knew I was going to be okay. Um, This past year has been really rough, but the whole time God's been through there. I had to go through a custody dispute and everything, but the whole time God was with me. And I knew that he was going to be there. And and I prayed every day to him. Now I have a year-old son that's the most perfect thing ever. 
Um, I have a new car, which, you know, I needed one. <laughs> Got I have a job that is for my going towards my major. And I'm standing here today. <laughs> because they came and disciplined me. I'm here today. Thank you for your strength and bravery, Joy. You all didn't know that was going on. Because church discipline stopped there. But we see it works. We see that God has displayed his glory in this situation. Um, Since that time, when Joy was kind of restored to the Lord and to us, uh, you can see God's faithfulness because she's giving the glory to God. She, I didn't have to twist her arm to come and share this today. At all. She wanted to do it for the church, for you guys, to help be a visual understanding that God can be glorified even in tough situations. Praise God. Thank you, Joy. Appreciate you. God has displayed his glory in the results of obeying his word. Do we see that? Do we believe that? To put it a different way, God is glorified here because his church obeyed his word. That was not a pleasant conversation for Jason and Charity to go and to do, and yet they were faithful and God was glorified in it. Guys, God's word works in recovering real love. Here. God's word works in restoring church members. God's word works in your life today. Believe him and obey. As we stand on the rock of Christ being our head, he will build his church. He will. In his way, in his time. So, here is our challenge as a church body. Are we going to read Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5 and ignore it? Are we going to read it and say, yeah, but that's not easy. That's not pleasant. That person might get mad at me. It may hurt something or other. Or are we going to obey his word because we believe that it works? Because we believe that he's right. That he's true. I pray that we have a biblical mindset on this. And that God, in the course of our everyday relationships between the members of the church, we would hold one another accountable in our church membership, that we would love one another enough to go to them and to express concern if needed. Or on the flip side of this too, I think we should go to our brothers and sisters and say, hey, I've really noticed God is working in your life right now. That's awesome. I thank God for that. You say, I thank God for evidences of grace in your life. This is incredible and I'm so happy for you. Can we be that kind of a church? Can we do that kind of a thing? That's what the nature of the church is in regards to church discipline. 
And so I pray that God would give us the steps to take and the people to would show us the people to be to fulfill this responsibility as his church. Would you pray with me? God, it's it's good and it's so right to see your faithfulness in our church. God, you redeem. You're the only one that can. Lord, if left to ourselves, we would travel down the path of resistance, hard-heartedness, hard-headedness. We would never turn to you. And yet, Lord, in your kindness, you've sent your Son, who's atoned for our sin, who calls us out even today to be part of this church, this body. Yes, we're flawed. Yes, we do have issues. And yet, when we come together and we love one another as we ought to, when we function as the different parts of the body as you've designed us to, Lord, we will be your radiant bride in this world today. And so I pray that our love for one another is reflected in this, that you would help us to recover real love for one another. Through your word, and in your name I pray. Amen.